dwell in love and peace, the same together as a fellowship, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. We're coming to God's Word uh, this afternoon, to the book of Philippians again, we're coming back to our little series on Philippians, The Pursuit of Joy, and we're turning to chapter 1 and verse 27, we'll read from verse 27 to 30, for just to get our context again. And then we're going to take time to and spend it in verse 1 of chapter 2 this afternoon. Philippians chapter 1, and we're reading from the verse 27. And I would like to speak to you under the title of Call for Church Unity. A call for church unity. And verse 1, or verse 27 of chapter 1, and this is the word of the Lord, and it reads, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit of one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake having the same conflict which he saw in me, and now here to be in me. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort with love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercy, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We trust the Lord will bless the reading of the word to each of our hearts this afternoon. The last time we visited our series of Philippians, we considered the closing verses of chapter 1. And Paul, he called for consistency in our walk. He wrote in verse 27, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. We learned that that word conversation in the verse wasn't just talking about what we say, or what we teach, or what we preach, but it was to do with the whole character. And our behaviour should match what we teach, and it should be Christ-like for the sake of the Gospel. But not only did Paul call for consistency in, our, in what we say and how we live, but he also called for cooperation. And in verse 27, he went on to say these words, he says, That ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for faith, of the gospel, and no matter what difficulties came their way in the Philippian church, Paul wanted them to live in unity. He said, Stand fast. Remember, it was like that war, that soldier who was in his post, and no matter what came his way, no matter what conflict came, the picture was that he would stand firm and he wouldn't move and he would stand for the gospel and he would stand for Christ. And that's what Paul was calling the Philippian church to do, both collectively and individually. You know, we live in a day 
that the gospel and the truths of scripture often come under attack. We as a fellowship and as the church across our province, we need to stand firm. We need to stand in cooperation and fellowship. And we need to stand firm in the gospel. And that's what Paul said. He says, only let your conversation, your character be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on, he says that you'll stand fast, that you'll stand firm in one spirit in cooperation with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let me tell you something, if we stand as the church of Christ for the truths that are taught in this word, we'll stand for faith of the gospel. And others will see it. And others will see the integrity and they'll be drawn to it because Christ will be lifted high. And Christ just promised that he is lifted high, he will draw all men unto himself. We need to stand in, in a consistent walk. We need to stand in cooperation. But last time we also went on and we watched Paul as he continued and he took, encouraged the Philippian church to have courage, to be consistent, to cooperate, and to have courage when faced with opposition. And Paul warned the Philippian church and he encouraged them to suffer persecution with joy. For the sake of Christ. He told them, and enough, I'm terrified by your adversaries. Don't be afraid of your enemy. Isn't that lovely what John wrote in 1 John 4, verse 4? He reminded the church that he wrote to you. He was writing a circular letter to many churches. But John, when he was writing that circular letter, he wrote these words, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We need not be afraid. Because greater is he that is in you to be a child of God than he that is in the world. Now we come this afternoon to consider these opening verses in chapter 2. The pastor of the evangelical church handed a questionnaire to each person in his conversation or in his congregation, asking them to answer three questions about the aims of their church and their means of achieving them. The first question was this: What should be the corporate aims? Of this church. The second question was this what prevents us from achieving these aims? And the third question was what spiritual and practical steps are needed in our church to help achieve these aims? For some of the folk in the church, it was the first time that they'd ever thought about their church's spiritual condition or any other higher aims for that matter. But almost without exception, the congregation saw a twofold goal for their church fellowship. The first was a deeper and more meaningful worship of God. And secondly, out of this, a further aim of serving the Lord more effectively. In other words, they wanted their worship to be deeper and their service more effective than it was at present. Impossible, you may say. Well, not at all. With the Lord's help, these aims could become a reality in that church. So what was stopping the church from fulfilling these aims? That is what the third question was to do with. Well, one person stated, the trouble is, we don't all get along together as we should. Another person felt, well, not all of us share the same ideas and how to bring about what we want in our church fellowship. Others wrote, the trouble is, the old ones don't understand the young ones. Relationships among some of our congregations seem to be strained, and this obviously affects our corporate worship and service. But one basic thought emerged from this church survey, and it was this. 
the church would be great if it weren't for the people. Problems and personal relationships in the church have appeared to be the largest hindrance to deeper worship and more effective service. People were the problem. You know, many churches are like that cartoon which show two sections of the congregation. One was facing that wall and one was facing that wall. None of them were facing the preacher. And the preacher in the pulpit said this, It's come to my attention that there's been a split in the church. Someone once said, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. You know, Philippians is the joy letter of the Bible. And you know, people can rob us of joy but they can never rob us of our joy in Christ. What people are and what they say and what we do, or what they do, should never be able to rob us of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, he faced problems with the people at Rome. And as well, there was a problem that emerged in Philippi. And it was the latter of these verses that, the verses that concerned Paul most. You see, Epaphroditus had brought a generous gift from the church in Philippi, and the good news of the church's concern for Paul came to him, and he also, but Epaphroditus also brought bad news of a possible division in the church family and church unity in Philippi. You see, smoldering beneath an otherwise spiritual church was the threat of division. For example, there were two women, and they weren't in speaking terms. You see, as often as the case, the problem started in the local church fellowship. There was trouble in the home front, and church unity was under attack. So Paul talks here in these opening verses of chapter 2 about how to get along with each other. And he stresses the theme of church unity, and that's why in the authority of scripture this afternoon, we hear a call to church unity. No local church, no local church is exempt on an attack in unity. It's been a problem right from the early church, here in the pages of Scripture, right throughout church history. There was a man who had a short poem displayed in his home, just four lines. And this is what it read, To dwell above with saints we love, thy yes, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well that's another story. See, Spurgeon once said, he would rather spend eternity in heaven with some Christians than spend half an hour on earth with them. Paul had to address this issue. And I'm glad he did. Because it's an issue in the wider church today. It's an issue in many local churches. But on a broader level, it's an issue in the body of Christ at large. Because it seems now that Christians don't fight their battles just in the local church. They'll fight them on the internet. They'll go on to social media platforms and they'll say what they like. As a result of that, the whole world knows the hostility that some Christians have towards one another. Let me say this to you today. If you take issue with something that a brother or sister in Christ posts publicly on social media, challenge them privately, not publicly. Because while you might be right in challenging what they say, and while I may actually agree with what you comment, sometimes it does more damage for the gospel than good. There's private messenger. Speak to them privately. There's many, many Christians today I see 
and they post things on Facebook and you see arguments unfold in the comments underneath and it does nothing for the gospel. Absolutely nothing. And today, if I can ask you to do anything or remember anything, if you take issue with a brother or sister, firstly challenge them privately. Speak with them and reason with them. Don't argue with them. They're your brother and sister in Christ. Because unity in the church is pardon for the gospel of Christ. When there's unity among Christians, it means that the people around us will know that we are his disciples. Because the Lord Jesus Christ said that by your love for one another, people will know that you're my disciples. He speaks about his own thirteen. Now generally from what we read in Philippians, we gather that this was a really good and healthy church. Paul loved these people. They brought him joy. They were people marked by thanks. They were people marked by joy. They were marked by confidence in Christ. They were marked by affection. They were prayerful. Of course, we learned that in chapter 1. They were obedient. They were faithful to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. They were generous. They had sent Paul a good gift. And in the fourth chapter of Philippians, Paul talks about how generous they had been sending gifts to him. And this was a church that had good leaders. In chapter 1 and verse 1, they had overseers, the pastors, and elders, and deacons. They were full of courage. They were filled with real love. They didn't necessarily have any doctrinal issues that Paul had to bring up in this letter. There was certainly, this was a church that you and I might have looked at and thought this would be a great church to go to. There were no corrections that Paul gave in this letter for moral misbehavior, which he did in many other letters to other churches. There was no false doctrine, no immorality. This fellowship was close to being the ideal church. But in spite of all that, there was this threat of disunity, spoiling all that was good. And this epistle has the sense that all is right, including joy, but there's this unity that could cause the problems. And the letter is framed by Paul's concerns about that because Paul told them, as we learned as we already alluded to at the end of the chapter, when you need to stand firm in one spirit, you need to stand in unity. There's his first call. And then in chapter two, and and, and sorry, in chapter four and verse two, he urges the two sisters to live in harmony in the Lord. You know, our constant prayer for our local church should be that the Lord would protect our unity. That the Lord would preserve us. And that man would not be able to tear asunder what God has joined together. But it's a constant battle. And it's a constant battle because the enemy of the church, the enemy of God, the enemy of Christ, wants to bring discord and disunity and friction and divisions of all kinds and dear brothers and sisters here in this local fellowship, the enemy doesn't like what we do here. And he will attempt to attack our church unity. So this morning what we want to do is we want to consider four incentives for church unity. Four incentives for church unity. What are the incentives? What is the basis, the ground, the foundation for unity in the local church? Well, it says in chapter 2, verse 1, this phrase, it says, if there be, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, if there be, if there is. Now that all phrase, I think, can be better translated this way. Since there is. So we could say, since there is, therefore, consolation in Christ. Since there is comfort of love. Since there is fellowship of the Spirit, 
and since there is bowels and mercies. You see, this word if, it's not that Paul is doubting that we have these in Christ. In fact, what Paul is saying is we have these absolute of absolute certainty. But he says these are four bases for unity to unfold. These are four incentives for church unity found in verse 1. And the first is this. Since there is consolation in Christ. Another translation says this. Since there is encouragement in Christ. There's enjoyment in Christ. Here's an incentive for church unity. There's enjoyment in Christ. And this little phrase, this is what Paul is saying. Because you have received so much personal assistance from Christ, because you're in union with Christ, because you are in Christ and Christ is in you, because Christ has come alongside and taken up residence in your life, dear child of God, and provided you with all the power and all the blessing, literally poured all of heaven's resources into your life as a believer, is that not a motive enough to respond in love and in gratitude and obey what Christ desires? He has given you everything, all spiritual blessing, blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. Has that outpouring of blessing, that enjoyment that you receive in Christ, is that not enough to gain a response from you? To say to the Lord Jesus, you have done so much for me. You have given me so many riches, I can't even count them. We often sing, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. He's given us so many riches, so many blessings, and he's poured them into our lives. And can you and I not respond by saying, I want to do what honours you. I want to do what you desire. And you can hear the Lord say, well, I want you to be at one. I want you to live in unity. It will be a mark of my church. It will be a mark of my disciples. They love one another. They live at one. If his gentle encouragement means anything, if his wise counsel through the pages of Scripture means anything to you, if his constant available power means anything, if all spiritual blessings in heaven are poured out in you, can we not just live in unity for the Lord Jesus Christ? He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He commands that we live in unity. And when we live in unity, the psalmist says it commands a blessing. I want to tell you something. This call this morning that Paul gives, it, it's not a legal duty. This isn't about law. This isn't just a command. What's it about? It's about love. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will keep his commandments. It's to do with God. It's to do with your gratitude for him. Do you love Christ? I want you to sit and think about that this morning. Do you love Christ? Is it evident in your life? Do, do you strive with your brethren and sisters to get on? Is there a matter between you and another member of the family of God that you need to put to bed this afternoon? Maybe an issue that you need to resolve in order to please your Saviour. You see, in this verse, Paul focuses on obedience as a way to thank the Lord for his unbounded blessing in your life. And dear child of God, if we've been brought into union with Christ, 
Well, in them we need to be in union with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me tell you this, you don't come into this local church fellowship here, Grange Baptist, to experience his presence. Because he's been with you from the very day in order you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Now don't get me wrong. When we come together as a church fellowship, there is a very special presence of the Lord. But let me tell you this. From the day and hour that you were saved, you were in union with Christ. And if you're a union of Christ, you've taken on the family he. And he calls us to live at one. Enjoyment in Christ. Enjoyment in Christ. That's the first consent of the living church unity. But Paul goes on and he says, Christ loves you. Look at what he says. If there be therefore any consolation, enjoyment, encouragement in Christ, then he says, because there is comfort of love. <coughs> comfort of love. One of the greatest prevailing predicaments of our contemporary lives is that so many of us are lonely and bereft of companionship, feeling even just with ourselves, even in a crowd, the feeling lonely. To be absolutely alone, it's, it's, it's a pandemic that runs across our country and with many different people. Loneliness, managing to disguise it with our superficial conversation, the appearance of a smile, and walking away from companies of people feeling absolutely desperately lost. There's many people, that's their experience. Just feel alone. There are many who feel this way just sitting in a crowd. The Christian need never face that predicament. Because there is encouragement from being united with Christ and there's comfort from his love. He saw you in your sin. And he loved you anyway. And he forgave us. And he graciously picks us up. He graciously picks me up when I feel him. He doesn't just cast us away. He continually, thoroughly cleanses us with his blood. We've sang about it with the children. He gives us a new, fresh new start. He gives us a new heart, a new mind, a new life. All undeserved. All by his grace. Don't we often sing, what gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to get. And what Paul again is saying as he calls for unity, he says, does it mean nothing to you? That Christ has given his life for you, that he has saved you, that he constantly cleanses you. And he says, since there is comfort and love, the believer must also see their brothers and sisters in Christ the same way that Christ views them. The believer must look at others and, and they must love them with that unconditional love that Christ has loved them with. And which God the Father loves them with. We have experienced this love with Christ ourselves, but indeed, Paul said, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. Let me ask you, is it evident in the way we live that the love of God is shed abroad in your heart? You know, Paul goes on in verse 2 and he says, Fulfill ye my joy. <coughs> what he means is, he means that as the people live in unity, as we live in unity, that we will cause, uh, cause our joy to overflow. You know that we saw my cups full and running over. It's a lovely wee children's chorus. You know, when I think of that, when we think of all that Christ has done for us, our cups should fit overflow. 
But not only that, I mean, when you look at this little phrase, any comfort of love, that love that Christ has placed in our lives should overflow and be evident to other people. Let me ask you, is it evident in your workplace? Is it? Is it evident that the love of Christ flows through you? And I know as well as you do, there are people and they are difficult to get along with. But let me remind you that you have offended a holy God of your sin. You were separated from him. He loved you anyway. Let me remind you that you had offended a holy God and had it only been for you, he would have went to the cross of Calvary for you. Dear child of God, is love shed abroad in your heart in all walks of life? Don't just come here on the Lord's Day and sit in the pew and sit in your suit and your lovely dress or, and look the part here. That's just loving Nicholas that way. When we come here, we come and we worship the Lord, but when we go out into the week, we ought to worship Him in the workplace, among our neighbours, among our family. I wonder if the love of God shed abroad in your heart. Is it ever that you're a child of God? We've experienced God's love and now we should exhibit God's love. Enjoyment in Christ. He sent us for church unity. Christ loves you. But also there's fellowship of the Spirit. Look at the verse again. If there be any consolation, enjoyment in Christ, if there be any comfort of love, Christ loves you. If any fellowship of the Spirit, there's fellowship of the Spirit. Now, of course, we're replacing that word again, if there be, it's better translated, because there is fellowship in the Spirit. This, these are facts. Here are Steve, this is a fact. There is fellowship in the Spirit of God. And you know what's to do with partnership and community and shared life. The child of God enjoys fellowship with the Spirit of God who dwells within them. It's a shared life. And you can see in this verse the Trinity present. First, there's an encouragement in Christ. That's Christ the Son. And then there's the comfort of love. And love comes from the Father because the Father is the source of love. Doesn't John 3.16 say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but hath everlasting life. There's God so loved. You can see Christ in the first part. You can see the Father, if any comfort and love. And now we see here the Holy Spirit and the fellowship he provides. And the question that Paul is asking the Philippian church and the Spirit of God asks to our hearts this, morning, this afternoon, does your communion with the triune God have any demand on your life out of gratitude that you should live in unity or are you going to be ungrateful? In spite of what the Lord desires, are you going to cause division and discord and destruction? Are you going to try and make enemies? Are you going to try to fight? Are you going to be ugly and criticizing other believers? Is that this is this what you're going to do when the world watches on? And since the Holy Spirit has regenerated you, so has the Son, so has the Father. Since God has affected our justification by His grace, and He sanctifies us and makes us more like Christ day by day, since He has guaranteed us our eternal glory, since the Holy Spirit has continually interceded us for us with groanings that cannot be uttered, since the Son of God ever lives to make intercession for us, 
since we have been gifted for service and filled with power to go out and serve Him, since we have been able to understand the Word of God taught to us by the Spirit of God, since we have literally been placed into the body of Christ, we've been given power to resist temptation because the power of Christ dwells in us. Do we not owe Him something? Do we not owe Him our service and our lives? Do we not owe Him unity and getting along one with the other? Let me tell you something. We owe Him great gratitude. And let me tell you this. Nothing is uglier than ingratitude. And a life that is not lived with thankfulness. Paul says, here's my call for church unity. He says, I want you to stand firm in one spirit and be at one mind. And then it flows down into the second chapter. And he says, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship in the spirit, if any boils and mercies. This is a strange statement. Boils and mercies. <coughs> it speaks of Christ's deep affection. Boils. In those days, it literally would have been to love with everything that is inside. <coughs> and actually, in those days, it would have been speaking about just all the internal organs. And it was just all my being. With all your being to love someone. That's what that Bible's words means. It was to do with a receipt of deeply felt affections. And this is what Paul refers to in chapter 1, verse 8. How I have longed for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Christ has the deep, deep feelings of affection for us. And the second word here to do with feelings is to do with feelings of mercy. The first is affection, the second is the result of affection. So because of Christ's deep feelings of, of love for you, this deep affection for you, he has constant, he has offered his mercy to you and his grace to you. Paul uses that second word twice out of four times to describe the tender mercies of God. He says, because you've received deep affection from the Savior and tender mercies from God, because the Lord pours out sympathy and compassion and kindness and love and makes you a partner and convinced with you, because he feels so deeply affectionate towards you, he is merciful towards you, what's your response to it? Well, Paul says, here's what your response should be. As I look in you, Philippian church, Paul says, make my joy complete. It will be like-minded, like-minded to whom? Like-minded to Christ. May the mind of Christ my Savior dwell in me from day to day. <coughs> Having the same love, the same love as whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. Being of one accord, of one man. And really the thrust of this little part, as Paul calls for a church unity, is to say, that Christ loves you. I hope you've got that. I think you've said it enough times. And because Christ has loved you, we're obliged to love one another. Over and over again, not just in Philippians, but in the New Testament, God's people are commanded to love in different contexts, in different settings, as parents, as children, as individuals, as the church. And on 13 different occasions, Christians are commanded to love one another. Now maybe this morning you say, well, hold on a minute. Why on earth would Christians need to be commanded to love one another? Should it not just naturally flow from us? 
with any local church wants the Lord to work in their midst, there must be a love for one another. If we have the help of the Holy Spirit, the most powerful source working within us, to show the world who are watching us that the Lord Jesus Christ really needs the death. If we understand God's love for us, we'll begin to love with that same supernatural heavenly love. And it will be God-word, a love God-word, and a love man-word. So as we close, let me make this practical. <coughs> the first thing is that you're not going to be able to show this love if you don't first know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you happen to be listening this afternoon and you're not a Christian, because we have a sinful nature, we feel and we are separated from God, you can come to Christ the first time and He will fill you with His love and His grace. He'll save you and He'll give you a new heart. And you can look to the Lord Jesus, who's the perfect example of it. Let me tell you something. If you're listening, maybe you listen online, maybe you're here. And you're looking at other Christians and you think to yourself, how hypocritical they are. Let me plead with you. Don't look at people who are seated as your martyr. Look <coughs> to Christ. Because people will let you down. People who are Christians, they still fight with their sinful nature and they will make mistakes. And they will do things that are wrong. Don't look at me. Don't look at those around you. Look to Christ. For those of us who are saved, the commands of love in this way appear so many times in the Scripture. And the reason for that is because we need to hear it from the Word of God. It is a command, but we should do it out of gratitude. We need to read our Bibles and let the Spirit of God minister us to show us where we're feeling so that we can practically show the love of God to others. This love is one we can't ignore. It's one that we need to show again as brothers and sisters of Christ. We need to have compassion one for the other. Do you know what it demands? Now this is hard. It demands forgiveness without apologies. That's not easy. The love of Christ, if it's to shine in your heart, it demands you to forgive those who haven't even apologized to you. This love is not an emotion. It's an action. For God's word commands us to put on love. And it should be a permanent priority in the Christian's life. In 1 John chapter 4 verse 7, you know, if you get a chance during the week, 1 John is a great, great book to read. And it speaks all about love and church unity. If you get a chance, just take a read through First John this week, or even this afternoon, as you consider God's Word. Here's what John says in First John 4, verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. 